0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in. All any parent really ever wants is the best for their child, but they can only do it through their filter. I didn't have a cheerleader. And again, that's the beauty of social media. If teenagers will come to platforms like yours, there is a community out there for them. You can't know happiness until you've known sadness. So get ready for that. Welcome to the Elevate
0: podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. I am very much looking forward to sharing insights from our special guest today. She is a wife, mother, author, and successful entrepreneur, an Ayurvedic expert, and a fundraising creative consultant. Above all, she is a woman of much compassion and kindness who is helping others strive to be their best selves by shining a light on their own authentic and true beauty. Our guest today is the lovely Anita Kosho, who many of you may already know as the co-founder of the hugely popular, award-winning beauty and skin brand, Moli Rituals, which is an all-natural treatment for skin, hair, body, and mind, harnessing Ayurvedic principles from India and crafted here in England with British refinement. One of the reviews I've read says it is self-kindness in a bottle. And as a longtime user myself, I cannot agree more. And if that isn't incentive enough for you to try, I encourage you to go and have a look at this amazing brand. It was created to encourage self-nurturing, stillness and letting go. Moli is available through world-class retailers and spas, including Space NK, net and the Bulgari Spa London. Born and raised in West London, Anita grew up in an Indian family heritage. Anita left school at 16 and went to work in retail and then recruitment. Hardworking and ambitious, she pursued a career in journalism and TV presenting before she got married and wanting to then start a family. Anita found it a challenge to conceive naturally and took the decision to adopt. She became a mother to a beautiful baby girl, Millie, who was matched with her in Delhi. However, in 2012, Anita very tragically lost her beautiful daughter, Millie, at the tender age of only 11 years old, to a battle with brain cancer. This significant loss led Anita to reevaluate where she wished to take her life and career next. It was on this journey that she immersed herself in the Vedic wisdom to co-found Moli rituals with her husband, Bitti. She says, Millie was kind and giving, and Molly was inspired by her goodness. She was also my biggest teacher. Anita, her husband and son Manev continue to honor Millie's memory in many touching ways. One of which is a fundraising initiative named Millie On and On. It is aimed at raising one million pounds and making the lives of children happier and healthier whilst encouraging individuals to commit to their own happiness. All of Anita's projects share a strong vision and a common thread to enrich the everyday, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Well, this is aligned with the Elevate message to a T and how we hope to raise our future children. So today we will be discussing some of the tips that have helped Anita on her journey, taking each day and making it count, how she's coped with grief and what she's learned from motherhood and her experiences, how we might be able to shift our daily habits to be more mindful for ourselves and our children. It is such a pleasure and such an honour to welcome you, Anita, to the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for being here.
1: You too. It's lovely to be with you. We've meant to meet a few times and this is how we're meant to meet. Looks all good. <laughs> exactly. Good. It's, it is. I was thinking earlier on my walk how
0: actually one of the most beautiful things about online relationships are is sometimes you get the most lovely friendships. Anita and I did first meet many years ago online and, and it's so nice to have this connection and able to share some of the things that you've been able to enlighten me with so I I hope to share that with my listeners today I felt it I felt it from the moment we connected so thank you so lovely (laughs) so I want to take you back a little bit and I as I do with most of my interviews I'd love to talk about young Anita I'd love to know a little bit about you I know you come from a big family you are the fifth of seven children if that's correct Yes. And your parents moved to the UK from India in the 1960s. I would love to learn a little bit more about your childhood, how you describe yourself and what maybe your teachers and parents would say
1: about you. I was not a chatty child. I was very quiet and I would see through people and things and that could be quite uncomfortable. My parents came to the uh, UK in the early 60s. They worked incredibly hard. They were very giving people To, to the day they died. It was my mum was very abundant. She never sought back in anything, and I remember days when they had a shop in Ladbroke Grove where there were days when they would take five pounds a day. It was tough. five pounds a day between seven children and as many guests that wanted to turn up. But I never saw her worry. She would just say, God will send, God will send it's all fine. She was original manifesto before she <laughs> before we really knew of the concept, and she would do the five two diet before we knew of the concept because. Two days were given over to God and to uh, a higher power. And you were fasting for something bigger than yourself. And you were fasting for, gave you discipline. And it gave you ritual and routine. And so she did all these things that I later read about, but she did them intuitively. My father was super spiritual and a real seeker. And I sometimes think of him and think, gosh, dad, if you had been alive now, like, because of online, there's so much rich content that we have access to that he had to find through books and gurus that he would find. I grew up in a very spiritual household, but we didn't know it as that. But I, I, I have to be honest and say I was quite a melancholy child. I was not a, a happy, joyful child. My parents would describe me as incredibly hard working like them, very deep and sometimes perhaps too deep, perhaps looking at things too deeply rather than just saying as as one of our dear friends is like just let it go <laughs> and I'm learning to be more that way <laughs> yeah that's amazing and did you is that do you think as a product of well nature
0: versus nurture but is it because you had such a big family and you were somewhere in the line of many children so you just had to fend yeah. for yourself and maybe you
1: turned inwardly more than yeah I think we all play a role don't we in families and being the fifth child, like the middle child, what that role is, you do hide in the back a little bit. And then I found my voice in, in my early uh, working life. I found my voice. And then, yeah, and then I had a real confidence as well. And I don't know where that came from, but it, I just had this feeling that, like my mum used to have, if you do, things will just work out. But don't be too attached to what that workout means, because I think be careful what you wish for is my mantra, you know, until you really know yourself. Really be careful what you wish for, because it will come true and it may not be what you imagine.
0: Interesting, especially as this work that we do is for teenagers and for teen girls. And I think what we think what we want when we're teens and what we want when we're in our 20s and 30s and 40s, it changes a lot. So this is a really good message, actually, to to remind ourselves of. I wanted to touch a little bit on the fact that both you and I are from Indian background and wanted to see if you had any thoughts on double standards and what it was like in in your household. It's a slightly difficult one, obviously, to talk about because I think then you and I both as mothers and having a daughter and a son each, which we do, and how maybe those double standards were for us when we were younger. I'd love to know what your personal take on it is, particularly when it came to education, because our cultural conventions sometimes don't value certain things for girls in our culture. So I wanted you to talk to me
1: about that, if you didn't mind. Totally. I now get it from my father's perspective, because what was important for him is that he has five girls. That he needs to get married. In a time when I was younger, we all had arranged marriages. I didn't. I found Bitu. And I just, the first night we went for a date, I said, you're going to marry me. I'm going to marry you. That's it. I just knew it. It was 1989. I'm quite old. And it was day, And I just knew it. There was something in me that he's the one. And I was right. And he thought, buddy boiler, but we're still together. We're good. The others all had arranged marriages. So my father's priority was, to be honest, is somebody going to be attracted to find it out more? Can they keep a house? Yes, there were double standards because my brother went to Cambridge and had a very different upbringing to me. There were double standards, but I understand that it came from a place of love. Ultimately, he wanted the best for his daughters. And from his blinkered vision and his peer group at the time, best meant bag a good husband bagging good husband men, don't be better than them because that's threatening to them stay in your lane and we also had the double standards which every time I had a tan my aunties would say oh you look dark don't do that because it's not attractive we were talking about this yesterday with my aunties that actually the color what's the word when you're color not the, when you have a color biased in the wrong way I can't think of the word colorism yeah Colorism was worse among our own community than it was, I think, outside of our community. And that's changing now, thank goodness. But, and it's only through people talking, but there was that too, that don't get too dark because you won't attract and don't get too educated and just learn your place. And I, or, that's the strength I had as a child is I always knew, I said, uh-uh, that's not happening for me. I'm not doing it. And I would rather be single all my life than to marry someone of your choosing. And I even said to my sisters, don't do it. Just don't do it. And if my sister calls you to do it, I'm sorry, that's not love. I was quite angry and aggressive about it. You had a strong sense of yourself and then. Yeah. Such a strong sense. But then I also realized now that what they did come from a good place. And when you know better, you do better. But it's incumbent on us because we do know better to bring our daughters up in a way that is it's not equal because male and female have different needs, I think. It's as equal as it can be. But I'm not, not trying to turn my daughter into my son or vice versa because they're different. And we must get so politically correct that we don't recognize that. We mustn't go so much the other way that we don't see the obvious. But girls do have different needs. But we've got to give them as much opportunity, as much Unity. And my mum always said, "I've got five daughters, five strong daughters who will carry me, and I know it." So she always felt that the girls would be the ones there for her, and we were. Although my brother really, my brothers really did us proud as well. Oh, so yeah.
0: I think what you've illustrated here today, though, is lovely in the sense that I think one of the powers, superpowers, I discuss with the girls I work with is empathy, yeah. and what oh, it yeah. feels like to put yourself in other people's shoes including your parents and i think when you're teenagers that can be quite a hard thing to do but what you've really demonstrated here is a really beautiful example of putting yourself in your parent's shoes and trying to understand where their biases where their double standards rightly or wrongly where they came
1: from was like in their intentions were always the best for their children always love and they were teenagers once remember that that Try and picture those teenagers who also had hopes and dreams. But all, all any parent really ever wants is the best for their child, but they can only do it through their filter. They can't through yours. So you've got to meet them in the middle of some way, but never lose your sense of self. I think as a teenager, if you have this strong sense of self, just hold on to that. Good on you. Hold on to that. But your parents are not your enemies. They'll always be there for you. They'll always walk. Yeah, that's a nice, yeah. that's a lovely
0: message. At the time, did you have career ambitions for yourself that were perhaps, I don't know, put to the side because the, the idea of being married was more important. And as, as that time of hormonal change and being a teen and wanting to do the things that you had your your heart set on, what kind of emotions were going through your mind and how did you, or were you able to talk? To your parents, because that's the other big element around, particularly Asian cultures, maybe not all of them, but talking about feelings and addressing things in a big emotional way with adults isn't always easy.
1: Did you have the same experience? Yeah. It was a very superficial kind of talking. It wasn't deep. You wouldn't talk like we're talking, no way. But again, and I used to go to bed crying because I wanted so badly to be educated. I was not the brightest but, button in school. Like I found learning quite difficult. But nevertheless, I had such a desire to learn. I've had that all my life, probably from my father. He had a thirst for learning and my mum, but they never had the opportunity either. So I would literally go to bed in tears because I would go to school, then go to my parents' shop to help them till 9, 10 at night, come home really tired, no time to study and probably go to bed about midnight just thinking I'll never be able to work if I carry on like this. I'll never be able to learn, but I so want to learn. And in school, and I went to a state school um, in West London, in school, if you were the brightest, you were given opportunities. If you were the middle, you were given, I I don't know, somewhere in my school, I got lost in the system and it just, there was no encouragement really. And it would just make me so sad. I was a very, I was a sad child because I knew, I had it in me I knew I had it in me but nobody was encouraging me I didn't have a cheerleader and again that's the beauty of social media if teenagers will come to platforms like yours rather than the ones that are not really in their corner they will come they will see that there is a community out there for them and if they're not getting support at home there are other people they can lean on we didn't have that it was just your peer group or nothing and if you didn't you strived more than your peer group. Where did you go? What could you do? My heart goes
0: out to you. It really does. And it, as a school teacher, that is really where my biggest amount of compassion for children was with those middle kids. Because you're right, the, the ones that were struggling always got extra support. The ones that were flying were extended and kind of praised and celebrated. But it's the ones that were trying in the middle but weren't quite met. I always felt needed the attention the most and didn't get it. Yeah, because they had the potential, which is exactly what you're saying. So tell me then how you pushed yourself or motivated yourself and landed yourself such an illustrious career. Talk to me about yourself as a, as a working, I think you did journalism, you've done,
1: you've done all sorts of things. So talk to us about that. I'm in an Ayurveda, what we call a vata dosha, which that's another podcast for us. But actually what girls need to do is follow their nature. So if then it is to want to change, then change. if their nature is to be in a steady career for the rest of their life, Do it. Follow your nature because your nature knows and trust that. So my nature wants to explore lots of different things. I wrote I books on um, inventors when I was young and I was really enthralled by inventors, the inventors of the light bulb and that I remember this book so well. I also was very creative and I fell into my careers because we were not encouraged to have a career. So I remember I was, I, I didn't have a degree because again, we were not encouraged to do that. And I had to come over after school or go to the shop because I had strict parents. So I thought, okay, the only way I'm going to be able to get home at 4.30 or, or rather 30 or 7, rather than 4.30 is if I get myself a job. So I got my part-time job working in a 7-Eleven or something. And my mum and dad, that, that were strict, surprisingly, didn't mind that. And then I said, sod this, I'm going to get myself a full-time job. And they didn't mind that. So I was bringing home a paycheck and I was handing it over to them. So I didn't have financial independence. Indian parents like to boast. And then then the next thing was, she's got a company car and so it went on. And I found it very, I found working life very easy. And I excelled on the, on the principle. Again, I'd read this book about win-win and I just, and I'd always put my parents in my in the shoes of anyone I saw. I would think, how would I want somebody to come and treat my parents if they were selling to them, or my siblings, or whatever it might be? So in my early career, I was selling, and it, I would always think, if I do right by them, everything I want will happen. It's just natural. It's just natural. You do right, will happen. So it was never hard because there was nothing. There was no, no conceit. There was no deceit. It was just. If I don't get what I need from this person in terms of numbers, I'll get it somewhere else because it will be right for that person. So there was no push. And then at some point, I was very good in my career. There was a lot of sexism, racism, all of that. But again, I think what girls need to remember is there is all of that, but just you do you and do your best and you will rise above it. There's no way you can't because you just will. So don't pay too much attention to those negative. Um, things that are there to get you down or that society tells you exist. No, you're your own person. You can rise above it. I did rise above it. I was the highest standing salesperson in my whole company out of thousands of men. And I didn't even think about it. It was just, I'm just going to focus on me, Stay stay in my headspace and it will all be okay. But then at some point I decided I wanted to work for myself. And I started an online business. I had a store in Notting Hill. I had a catalog and it was all going swimmingly. I had my daughter and then, then I had my son and then my daughter became ill. She had a brain tumor when she was two and a half and my son was three days old. And so quite a tricky time. And it was a decision of, do I build the business bigger when it was going swimmingly? And it was my baby. Or do I just sell the parts of it and focus on my children? I have to be honest and say it was not an easy decision because I really loved my career, but it was in the end a no-brainer. And closed down my business and I focused on my daughter and my son. And they were the happiest and unhappiest of times. Bittersweet because when you have an illness in the family, anyone who's been grieving, any teenager who's having a hard time, also illuminates a lot of love because you really connect to what counts. Everything is two sides of a coin, isn't it? And that's another teenage girls to remember. When you're sad, realize that's going to show you what happiness looks like. You can't know happiness until you've known sadness. So get ready for that. Welcome it. Say, this is good. Ah, oh, I'm, I'm sad. That means tomorrow I'm going to get to be happy. And I'm really going to know what it feels like because I've witnessed sadness. So don't feel it's a negative. It's not. It's just the path to happiness. I think your ability to be resilient
0: is huge, right? The the fact that you've been able to rise above all of these obstacles, whether they be sexism, racism, whatever it was at work, or the obstacles that education wasn't easily encouraged in your world, you found a way through it and you found a way to believe in the end game being something that you stick to your own values for and pursue. So I am going to keep the the conversation going a little bit more on on motherhood because you just touched on the fact that you had a beautiful daughter and have a beautiful son as well. And it wasn't an easy thing at the start with because right in the early days, she fell ill. But even before that, if we take it one step back a little bit, I wanted to know how important motherhood was to you because it wasn't a natural journey to have your daughter called Millie in your life. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about that?
1: I had this sense that when I was younger, I had this sense I needed to adopt a child. Really? Yeah, I had it from the age of nine. And I just felt that this was my calling. And It was at a time when people didn't talk about adoption. It was not commonplace at all. Nobody in my family even knew the concept of, nobody, but I had a feeling. And when I met Bitu, I, again, I'm going to say to the girls, be careful what you wish for, because when I met Bitu, I said to him, if you want a child, you mustn't marry me because I will not be able to give you a child. I said the words, I will not give you a child. I, I won't be able to. And because I had this sense that I need to adopt a child. And also growing up in an Indian family, there were a lot of, I knew of a lot of women who had bad experiences with men. It's very prevalent in our culture. And I just felt, why do we need to bring more children into the world when there are these children that are having a tough time? So it's in my, in the background stayed with me. And then Lo and behold, we get married and I'm not in a rush to have children, but I'm not. I was not a natural earth mother. I was actually frightened of having children because I feared that I wouldn't be a good mother. Can I just say, girls, it is all just messaging. It's all messaging that we've given our brains. It's not the truth to just be aware of that. Don't give those negative messages power because they are just an illusion. So I had this illusion that I wouldn't be a good mother. And I told Bitu, I wouldn't even be able to give you children if I wanted to. I didn't have proof of that. I made it so then I couldn't. When I was then finally ready, it just wasn't happening. And there was no reason. The doctors couldn't find a reason. It was my brain. So then and I said to Bitu for a few years, Bitu, I really want to adopt really. And he would say, no, Nee, if it's not our, our own, let's not go there. Let's just be happy on our own. And I love you and we're good. And I would say, no, but I really want to adopt. And eventually he said, okay, let's do it. And the day he set eyes on Willie in India, he was more in love with her. than I remember she had milk, like milk coming down her mouth here. And he licked it and I said, oh, the man, I at, but I'm not doing that. Then he, he suddenly was more in love than I could have ever imagined. And from that day. Maybe it was ours. She was, she had a mother who we don't know because she was abandoned and that mother was her vessel and I wish with all my heart I could find her and tell her an incredible daughter she had. There's nothing I'd want with that, but I can't. But I believe on some plane, we were always destined to be together because she was my carbon copy. Yeah, the same sense of humor. We're both good at accents. We're both, she was very kind and compassionate, but very strong. She, she was an incredible child. All children are incredible. Millie was child. And so not long after, two, she came to us at 11 months and at two and a half, she had the brain tumor. And then she did recover from that. It was nine hour operation, chemo, radiotherapy very difficult time but she did recover. Her hearing was a bit impaired because of the chemo and she her balance was tricky. She would fall over, but man, she never gave up. I remember going on the running track at school and she would be the last, always the last by far. But would she give up? No, she would carry on. Not about the winning. And again, it's just stay with your best. Just stay with your best. And it's good enough. That's more than good enough. So then at 10, her tumor came back, which I could never have imagined. I just didn't see that coming. And then this time, the doctors told us that it was terminal and that she was going to be leaving us. And what do I say about that? I'm an incredibly lucky woman to have had to be to be touched by that light. I'm incredibly lucky, and I have the most beautiful son who is kind and compassionate as a result of his experience. And all of you. Whatever experiences you have had, there is, a, there is gold in them. There is a gift in them. So find the gold rather than looking for the, looking for the dirt and the mud because there is gold there. And there is gold in my experience and I wouldn't change it for anything. Her time here was done. Uh, it was done. The fact
0: that you come from a spiritual background and, the, and I know the work that you do, which we will touch on in a minute, is also very spiritual. But the fact that you've been able to extract the most beautiful part of your daughter's journey with you physically in the present world brings me so much hope for lots and lots of parents and lots of kids because obviously Millie is the age of the girls that I work with and it's hard to think of a 10 year old girl that suddenly has to be faced with the fact that she no longer can be with us and I think there are lots of other families that probably and again we don't talk about these things openly enough it's not easy. I think the, the pandemic may have sh- shone a light on it a bit more, but I think children talking about death and grief is a really tough thing. And if parents aren't open to those conversations either, then it makes it a difficult channel to have that, those lines of communication open anyway. So I really am grateful that you've shared your personal story with me today. And anyone listening out there, if this is an incentive for you to be able to talk to your young ones about things that are hard then I hope it helps you because I, I know what Anita's sharing today isn't easy um and it's never easy to relive those moments of pain
1: but actually if you don't go to the painful times you'll never get outside of them either totally and I was told and if any parent listening I was told my gut told me that I needed to tell her she was going to pass in a way that she said to me one day mummy I'm too young to fully understand the implications and I'm too And I'm not old enough to understand the implications. And I'm too old to not be frightened by what is being said. She was in that in-between stage. And so I didn't articulate it as well as she did, but I I get what she was saying. It's like a child can understand, they can read a word, but doesn't mean they can fully understand what it means. I believe in, I believe in rebirth and maybe that's why I'm okay with it, you know, because I believe that the journey doesn't end here, and I didn't want her to leave this life with mistrust. I didn't want that. I didn't want her carrying it on, and so I felt I owed it to her because she said, "Mummy, if I do yoga and I eat well, am I going to get better?" And I thought, "I'm not going to see diminishing before my eyes." And tell her, "Yes, eat a bit of air, and life's going to be sweet." I'm not going to do that. And then all my family was saying she should have chemo, but that was to prolong her life a little bit, and I felt she shouldn't because. If the end is inevitable, I'm not keeping her alive for our satisfaction. I'm not going to do it. Cause it's not, she's had chemo before. We did it because there was an end, there was a goal, but I'm not going to do it when I know that there's no. So I I was totally against it. Then I said, I won't tell that to Millie, but you, know, you guys can say what you like. But if she then disagrees, you're not to force her. Every member of my family went into the room one by one and said, Millie, please have chemo, And No, I'm not doing it. She said, I'm not doing it. She had one round. She just didn't do any more. And I applaud her for it. She was a stronger. I asked somebody, how should I tell her? So if anyone's listening, I think this is a really good way of telling someone. They said, why don't you tell her that God wants her to wear a different costume and play a new part in the drama? So I said, darling, I think God next time wants you to be a fairy princess or wants you to be, I think it's time to play a new part. And then I said, there's a, your doll is going to the light. And when it gets up into the light, it's going to meet all its family and friends. and It's going to be a celebration. And she totally got it. And she hugged me and she cried and I cried. And after that, we didn't talk about it other than she would say, when can I go to fairyland? which was code for, I'm done. And I would say, not yet. We've got to play April Fool Prance and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. And it went on until I could see there was no energy left in her. And then when she said, when can I go? I said, whenever you're ready. And she passed the next day. We didn't have much left in her then. And yeah, she was ready. She, she was ready. I could see it. And so I wasn't going to hold her back. And uh, children know they're strong. They, they know much more than we, they're much wiser than we give them credit for.
0: And of course, in this whole process, one of the things that we haven't touched on is that you've talked about the fact that you gave yourself the messaging and like, I'm a massive believer of neuroplasticity and neuroscience. And all the work I do with my girls is all about how we train our brain to work for us and, and be our friend. And and I know you have also spoken to lovely Mo Gaudet, who, who talks a lot about how we can work on the happiness occasion and how we can scientifically make our own happiness. Now, clearly, when you're grieving and you're looking to, you knew that you couldn't give yourself naturally give birth at that point. So you went to India and
1: you adopted Millie, but then you had your son naturally, didn't you? So your body, isn't that interesting? I said to Bitya, I want to adopt another child. And then something in me said, oh, I think I might be pregnant like days after. And I didn't know what that felt like. I've never been there before. Oh, I think I'm pregnant. And I didn't know why. And I was on my way to USA and at the airport, I had to go and buy a kit. And I was in the loo at Heathrow, peed on a stick and I came out and I was just in shock. Phoned him and said, I, I couldn't even say the word. I said, p- p- I couldn't even say the word. And i tell you what shifted. I'll tell you why I fell pregnant because every bit of inner belief that I had that was holding me back saying, you're not going to be a good mother, just melted away because I realized actually I am. So yeah, what we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves, shape our reality. And sometimes we become very addicted to that story because it's a comfortable place to be. But being, not being challenged and being safe in that story is much easier than having to come out of that story. And so we stay safe and we stay small. And if any daughter has ever been brought up to stay small, she's going to stay small. But And that might not be messaging from her parents. It might be messaging from her school friends.
0: Society, social media, yeah, anywhere. It's all through osmosis. I wanted to say how wonderfully, what a great example of rewiring your brain that was, right? As soon as you had the proof that you're a good mother, your body and your mind shifted and you became a mother again. And I, I suppose for anyone else listening to this, when they've got multiple children to raise and they've got one child, whether they've got illness or a learning difference or something else, and all their attention somehow is taken by the parenting, by the parent because of this, how did you balance that with your son? And how did you?
1: Yeah. And it can be when there's not even a illness. It can be sometimes when one child is more gregarious than another, the other gets left behind. It can be any number of reasons. And I, as a child of seven, I witnessed that. It's just the way life is. I think how you do is the parent needs to make time to take each child out separately. Put it in your diary, then I'm going to take this child out separately and do something that they enjoy doing. Now, I couldn't always do that because Milsey really did need my attention. So I relied on my sisters to do that. And the love that they gave him and continue to give him, perhaps I couldn't even give him. I I believe that it's the other child's journey to experience what they experience. And it will make them the incredible person that they will become. Don't beat yourself up because Manavis is this incredible, noble young man because of the life journey he's been on. And so would I, if I had given him more time and attention, would he be this incredible young man? I don't know. So as they say on Love Island, it is what it is. And don't beat yourself up. And we would try and take out separately. The car time is really precious when you're taking them to school. It's such precious time because you can have that one with them then. I, I purposely put them in different schools so they would have their own friends. And we were mindful that we would take it in turns where one parent would be with one child and one with another. And then we would do tag team. Couldn't always be with them together. And that's a shame.
0: It's hard, but it needs must. And I think one of the things I wanted to touch on again, based on your own personal experience, which I think is really remarkable, is you said Millie was one of your greatest teachers, I read, which is, yeah, amazing. And I maybe she was a teacher for Manav as well, and, and maybe for your whole family. I feel like she was a teacher, some sort of guiding light for anyone, like me, myself, and I, of just not even having met her, but through you and reading about her and, and looking at some of the pictures of her, I feel such a deep connection for this lovely energy that she had. But I think one of the things that you struggled with at this time when you were probably dealing with accepting the news of her illness, understanding that you've been hit with a ton of bricks, with the idea that she may no longer be able to stay. She would say to you, Mummy, you were with me, but you were not with me if you're doing that. So don't pretend. And it brings me back to this whole idea around mindfulness. And what busy parenting can look like. And obviously when something as big as an illness as hers is in front of you, everything must be so difficult to manage. And the entirety of multitasking must have a a whole new definition. But I think you took this experience and gave a whole new meaning for mindfulness in your life. and And you still do,
1: I feel. I think what happens is when you've gone through painful situations, the The body just tunes out, the mind tunes out, and you're seeing everything moving and but you're not present, you're not in your body. We all do that from time to time, but she did teach me because when she was ill, she was so present, she never tried to, to not feel the pain she, and children are really good at this, aren't they? They cry, they hurt themselves, they cry, they have a good old you've seen them. She, screaming at the shops because they want that sweet or whatever it is. They feel it. They don't suppress it. Adults suppress it. And sometimes teenage girls suppress it because they're not supposed to. We've got the messaging, girls don't cry, boys don't cry, whatever. Yeah, you do cry. You must cry. You must feel whatever you feel like. And then it's the only way out the other side. So she definitely taught me that. And the learning continues to this day because it's very easy to tune out on your phone, isn't it? Very easy to do that. Like as soon as something's uncomfortable or you're bored even for a minute and boredom is such a brilliant thing to, to feel because it's, it's where ideas come from. You just grab your phone. And actually, if you're creative, probably like we both are, it, you also grab it because it pulls you in. So you've got to set a limit. But yeah, she definitely taught me that is that, yeah, just be present because life is precious. If you're not feeling it, Why? What's the point of that moment? What what is the point of that? My father-in-law would say, what point? What is the point? You've got to feed it. Sometimes you have to leave your friendship circle to do that because maybe they don't allow you that. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't give you space for that and you, you don't feel that trust in them. And that's okay. Sometimes you have to find your tribe that are going to support you. And they aren't there so don't sell yourself short if they don't accept you as you are then they're not really your friends
0: i wanted to ask you if you had any practical tips because the work that you do now and, and we'll move on to a little bit about that as well the ayurvedic guide we'll just touch on it like we said it's a probably a different podcast altogether but i do want to link it in because mindfulness is part of what i want young know, teens to stop chasing what you think is coming next live the moment now. Don't worry about GCSE results. Don't worry about A-levels. You're 11. Let's live today and let's think about what you're doing. And I I think one of the biggest questions I've had, and you touched on the phone thing, and one of the greatest concerns I've had from parents in the last six months has been through the various lockdowns over the last two years. Without social media and phones and devices, many of us couldn't have got through it, adults included. I put my hands up 100%. And what they're finding, and, and I did, you know, lots of chats with parents last week and the week before, and every question unanimously was, we gave into the phones, we gave into the devices, we let them have them in their bedrooms, we had to get through lockdown, we had to work. But now we are struggling to get them to be present with us. We are struggling to get them off those devices and we don't know how to reel things back in. And, I don't, and, and obviously I'm not here to preach and every family will have their own. In different rules and, and moral compasses, but I wondered if you might have any practical tips based on the experience that you have, the practices that you use. And I know how old is mine of now?
1: He's eighteen, so he's eighteen. No, an adult. Okay,
0: yeah. Yeah. he's an
1: adult. He's off to uni, and you're absolutely right. He met his girlfriend during lockdown on the phone. What can we do about that? So I can't think about that. It's the new world, but I think we can do it by we can do it by showing them being a good example, we can't be saying to them, can you get off your phone now? And you can't do that. I can't do it with Manav now, but we did have a rule before where we would say at nine o'clock and wasn't even early, nine is late. We all have to put them in a particular room. We all have to put the box room for the night and he would say, but I won't wake up. I'd say, it's fine. I'll wake you up. We'll get an alarm clock. And that did work to a point. And even my husband loves this phone because he does Wordle on it and he read Guardian on it. And so, yeah, that is hard, but you've got to empty your mind at night. And maybe if you can sit with the children and do some breathing exercises, it would just calm them, calm their nerves. So maybe you won't be able to take the phone away too long, but you'll be able to make the impact of it better by doing these simple things. So, do it all together as a family. It's a lovely thing to do together. One of the best ones is when you do the the pranayama, which is you breathe through this nostril and you close this nostril and breathe out through that one, in and out through that one. It's a really, it just relaxes everything. And then they don't want to quite be on the phone quite as much. Also, for parents and for girls to realize that we all have a nature. Like I was saying, this is the Ivy, thing, is that. Some people are naturally very fast and multitasking and want to do so many things all at once. That's their nature. That's just who they are. But they're the ones you've especially got to get off the phone because they can really get um, troubled. They really can get troubled by it because their focus is already very low as compared to others at the phone, or even lower. Then there are the types who are uh, the, we call the fire element. These Children are very ambitious, focused, but they're very self critical. And then you could watch on the phone because there's comparison all the time. That's really dangerous. And then you've got the earth energy people, kind, compassionate people, but they have a tendency to get quite sad if they don't watch it. They've got to be on the phone because, again, they're watching these pretend lives. I don't think you can take the phone away from children, it's their life. This is their life. You mustn't take it away because you're depriving them of what's natural for them. Just like us using our laptops all day, we couldn't do our jobs without them. They can't really live their nice lives without them. If you want them to, you're going to have to take them to somewhere where there's a super remote, where nobody has a phone and it's just a natural way. You can't do it. You can just lead by example and have times in the day where you say, right, for one hour, agree with them, get their buy. For one hour, I'm taking it away for your best interest. And and you can't have an Instagram account until you're X years old. My, my friends have done that and it's worked. They said, no, nope, sorry. And when they've had the Instagram account and their daughter, who's 15 now, so she's not a baby, put something inappropriate on it. Her parents said, that's it. You're barred. We're taking it away. You're not going on Instagram because we will not have you posting things like that. Uh, while you're under our roof. And they've always been very clear with her. There's no gray area. We're the parents. We don't care what's going on in the world. This is our rules and you live by them. And if another person's rules is be on your phone when you like, then so be it. That's their rules. Yeah, no, those are important reminders. I think, thanks Anita for sharing that. I really do appreciate it. And I
0: think you just touched on the different energies that different people bring in the nature, which is the essence of one of the one of the sort of pillars of Ayurveda. And I wanted to talk about Ayurveda because I think in sort of some of us who are less aware or slightly more ignorant around studies, might think it's about turmeric and it's about ashwagandha. That to hear some words in <laughs> yeah, it is right. Like there are terms out there. When I was a kid, for example, in Vancouver, I would watch my granny put turmeric in her hot drinks, and we would cringe and think, "What in the world is she doing?" Now, I'm not saying she was practicing ayurveda, but in, growing up, they would say, "Well, yeah, she was." And now you can buy a turmeric latte anywhere. You can go out and buy all of this, and I just it's brought like you know visions of my granny doing this, at, at not charging seven pounds or whatever it is. To- to part of it's in a cafe. Um but could you maybe in less than I know we are running out of time here, but maybe in a minute or so, give us a brief summary of what Millie's journey has enlightened you on to and what you practice today and how something so difficult in your life
1: became something truly beautiful and what you're doing to, what you're doing right now. Morley is my medicine. It's my medicine because and and I you probably feel the same with what you do. It's your medicine because it, it feeds it feeds you. So what happened when Melzi passed away, I decided to set up a fundraising site called Millie On and On. Uh, I wanted her goodness to live on and I wanted to raise a million pounds and I wanted a million people to be impacted by her, her goodness, like for it to pass it on. So what we did initially is I said to people in my circle, do something kind for someone else. And at the same same time, something kind for you because you can't give up to an empty cup. So, my niece, for instance, would read a book and then she would leave the book on the tube with a note inside saying, This is for you. I really enjoyed it because I hope you enjoy it. And she kept doing that. She still does it years and years. Obviously, during COVID, nobody picked the book up, but you know, she, my other friend who's really into her health would say, I'm going to every single night, I'm going to have a slab of dark chocolate. Every night for the rest of my life, and she will timely. But that was her thing to me: really enjoy your life, and I'm going to enjoy mine. And some friends would wear. Oh, some people grew um, herbs in their kitchen because they didn't have gardens, and then they would share them with people. Anyway, this was all about do for yourself. We had books uh, printed in schools. Uh, that's a very different subject, but they were great. And at some point, my husband came to me and said, "Mita, I think we need to start working again. Now this is all horrible, but." You, we, you, we can't sustain the life you want, me, not him, because he'd just live on a mountain and be happy, but I do like the finer things. <laughs> he said, we can't, and I'm, that's, that's fine. And he said, we can't sustain this life unless we begin to work again. So I said, okay, Bitu, I will work with you because he'd done skincare distribution before, but I will only do it on my terms, which is I have to give as a part of it. And it has to pay homage to my Parents who had also passed. My pa- my father passed two weeks before Millie unexpectedly, and my daughter. And so he agreed, and then we went on this journey. And there was fear in the beginning. But again, it's taught me because I did feel fear. Will it work? Won't it work? What am I doing? But the longer we did it, the more it really started to feed me. And the incredible thing, like there's divinity everywhere. We called it Morley because it's the red thread that connects us all, and I believe we are all connected everything and everyone. And I'm still connected to the people who have passed. They don't, don't go away. They just change form and that's it. But the first two letters of Morley are the start of Manav's name, M-A. The last two letters are the end of Millie's name, N-I. And the middle, it's you, And the only le- other letter is you, and it's everybody we do it for. And it's the universe, isn't it? It's divine. I didn't plan that. Everything Morley really feels divine and I'm not doing it. And again, I think if people remember to get out of their own way, my father-in-law's favorite saying, he says to all his grandchildren, do your best, leave the rest. Just, just don't, he would always say when they're going for exams or anything, do your best, leave the rest. If you've done your best, do not project into the future about what will happen. Let it go. So incredible. Um, so Maudie was, uh, Morty is an Ayurvedic brand cause he was an Ayurvedic doctor. It's all about products and a philosophy that is about looking good here, because why shouldn't we, that that's part of our being, feeling good here and doing good when we put things into our body. And I think unless you feel good here, you cannot look good here. You can see it on your students, can't you? You can see their white on their face. So no amount of creams that they buy online, I don't ever want anyone to buy one of our products because they think it's going to change their life. It's not. It's going to make skin a bit softer. It's going to make their hair a bit thicker. But ultimately, none of that's going to matter if they feel bad. I've had days where people will say to me, don't you look beautiful today? But because I'm feeling sad inside, all I see is an empty person. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks or what you're looking like. It matters more what you're feeling like. That's what what body is about. It's about feeling your best self because that is your best. And it, which we will cover on another podcast, but what the girls need to recognize is that we're not all the same, We're, we're connected, but we're different. Embrace the personality you are and don't try and be someone you're not. Don't try. Celebrate that you're different. Don't try and be like someone else. And that's what Ayurveda is about. Celebrating our different and coming together to share.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. What an amazing and empowering message. And it's so aligned with the Elevate messaging. So I'm grateful that you were able to share all of this and reinforce the things I hope I can bring to parents and teachers of young girls um, out there to take some of this amazing, genuinely Authentic advice because you're living it, breathing it, working on it, and you've had your hardships. The many of us will always fail; they uh, will face. They are inevitable, aren't they? And we've got to find the ways through them.
1: Yeah, it's rain and sunshine. You can't have one without the other, so it's inevitable. And it's all just—it's all part of our drama. That's it. It's all part of the day. Enjoy your your part. Enjoy it, and that's it. I would love to end the interview. With, uh, with a
0: quote from you, and I'll leave our listeners with this, because I think it sums everything I want young people to hear, I want everything I want adults to hear, their parents' carers to hear. And this is what Anita said, "At the most challenging time in my life, I paid little attention to my physical and emotional well-being, and this left me depleted and at times disconnected. I know now that the authentic way to give to others is to be fully present and to show kindness to ourselves first. Anita Koshal, you are an inspiration. Thank you so much for being with me today. I've loved it. I really have.
1: Thank you so much.
0: If anyone wanted to find out more about work, we didn't get through all of the things I would have loved to have chanted about, but we will. But if they wanted to get in touch with you or find your products or learn more about how they can use Ayurvedic practices to enhance, enrich and bring the more connected life to their, to their day-to-day um, living, how could people do that? Would you like to direct people to any
1: Go to morleyrituals.com, mauli rituals.com or go to our Instagram account, Morley Rituals. And yeah, there's lots of information there. You can do your, you could do your dosha consultation online. It will tell you a little bit about your elemental makeup. There's a lot of information there and just, yeah, delve into it because it's, it's really empowering, really is. I,
0: I second that. And I've been a longtime user of Moli. And um, I have to say, it's helped me in many ways. <laughs> so I, I encourage you to get yourself onto those products. They're absolutely beautiful. They smell divine and they will help in a lot of ways before you even realize it. Get to yourself and read all about it. And if you've any got questions, I'm sure the Moli team will be happy to assist you with that. Thank you so much once again for being with us, Anita. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, it's been a while and I wanted to thank you for your patience. Since the last set of conversations we've released, I've published a book. I hope you already know about it, maybe even have it. I would love for you to share my new book, Girl Elevated, Five Steps to Empower Young Girls to Be Their Best with others, teachers, parents, coaches, your friends, anyone who works or is raising young girls. I hope this resource will be something that will be useful and helpful to many. If you have had it and you've enjoyed it, leave me a review on Amazon because that will help lots of other people find this resource as well. Thanks so much for all your support. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestepino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.